Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present an NYFF 61 crosscut conversation between Annie Baker and Raven Jackson, the directors of two of the most self-assured debut films of the year, Janet Planet and All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, respectively. Covering traits of the coming-of-age genre, writing practices, and non-traditional scripts, Baker and Jackson's conversation was moderated by NYFF Main Slate committee member Cameron Austin Collins. Breaking onto the scene with two of the most original and assured feature debuts in recent memory, Annie Baker and Raven Jackson have each crafted tone poems of breathtaking delicacy. With stories that weave together themes of motherhood and coming of age, with a lush, exquisitely detailed sense of place, Baker and Jackson distill and transpose the singular qualities of their literary work to the cinematic medium. One of the most visually striking and profoundly moving American movie-making debuts in years, the NYFF 61 main slate selection, All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, is now a New York Times critic's pick and is currently playing daily at Film at Lincoln Center. Get tickets at filmlink.org slash salt. Now please enjoy the conversation between Raven Jackson and Annie Baker. All NYFF 61 talks are sponsored by HBO. Thank all of you for coming. This is really exciting. Um, And before getting into any questions, I just wanted to say to both of you that you had um, among my favorite films that we programmed this year. And um, Raven, I saw your film at, at Sundance and instantly fell in love with it, instantly wanted it for NYFF and have been thinking about it since January, which is a long time to be, you know. Um, and, and Annie, we saw your film in June and it's again something that I've been thinking about and contemplating um, and revisiting in my mind for months. So this is just really an honor and a joy. Um, I wanted to start with maybe an odd question, but it's something that occurred to me for watching your films, um, and something that immediately that I felt, which is that watching just the opening scenes of both of these films, I felt an innate trust in where these films were going to take me and also a certainty that I didn't know where they were going to take me. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about trust in part because you both made adventurous films, adventurous projects, um, films that I think it must have been interesting to talk to actors about in terms of getting them to be in it, producers in terms of getting them to sign on and support them. And I I just want both of you to to talk a little bit about um, the seeds of these projects and how you got your collaborators to take the leap with you, whoever wants to start. We can eeny, meeny, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. We can do, you know. I'll start, I guess. Um, yes, you know, for this, for All Dirt Road, Taste of Salt, and thank you for those beautiful words. Um, I came to it not from just one place, but a lot of places. I, I knew I wanted to make a film on a Black woman in the South, and I knew I wanted to explore her life. And... Um, for the longest time, I used the word nonlinear when saying it, like, uh, and then I changed the language, but I would say in a nonlinear way. Um, 
And it took me taking photographs and really building a pitch deck for the film and building my language for it before I really came to the page, um, to the chagrin of my producer, Maria Altamirano. <laughs> um, she was she wanted those pages at first. But once I was in the world, I started to write what I call portraits, which are scenes of her at different ages. And then I started to write and take away, write and take away. I wrote more than in the script. It's like a 60-page script. And when we would go out and pitch it, um, when we were still building the project in the earlier stages, I think it was important for us to, once that language was found, to be unapologetic about what it was. And to, when you meet someone and they aren't willing to take that leap or those risks, be like, okay, it's not this one, you know, maybe it's the next one, but not be willing to move just to make this person come on board, you know? And because... I knew what the project was deeply. Maria, who was on it at that, already knew what it was when we did meet folks like Pastel with uh, Adela Romanski, Barry Jenkins, and Mark Sariak. It it made sense, you know. It was like they got it, and we it made sense to move forward. But I think us owning it was important. Yeah, I. Uh, it's so funny that your script was only sixty pages because mine was only sixty seven. But we both made because your movie is like almost one forty or. It's a uh, ninety-seven minute. Yeah, but it, the minute a page thing doesn't apply to either, <laughs> either movie at all. And I'm curious, did you yeah. know you would sit in moments? Yeah, I knew it would be longer than sixty-seven minutes. I, I remember when I met my editor, he was like, "I think it's going to be ninety-five. We like sort of are placing bets on how long. But our original, our I'm so long. How I'm curious how long your first cut was. To our first cut was two forty-five. <laughs> Do you remember how long yours was? No, it was too long, but um, I, maybe two hours? Yeah, I would be so, at some point, I would be so curious to hear about what you cut. Um, Me too. And to tell you what I cut. Um, But yeah, I I totally agree. It's, and and I do think that producers are so important. And, And for me, really early on, um, the very first person I gave the script to was um, a person named Rose Garnett, who was at BBC Film at the time, but is now at A24 and is just a powerhouse and an incredible person and wants to make the best film possible and isn't thinking about marketability or if she's thinking about it, she's not telling you. And and so bringing her on at the beginning was really good. She's an old friend. And then I brought on the producer, Dan Janvey, and then his new film company, Present Company, came on. And all of these people were just people. It's like they weren't going to try to pressure me to cast a movie star. It was, And it was that was laid on the table very, very early on. And when I was meeting with producers and they were talking that way, I just was kind of like, oh, okay, well, this isn't the right match for this project. And same with all the department heads, too. Um, but, yeah. It's tricky. It's really tricky with your first film, and 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 also admitting when you have no idea what you're doing and when to ask for help, and then also when to just be like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know this thing, this one thing, and we just have to chase it. It's it's a it's a tricky balance. Yeah. And you're both coming from also just a real experience in other art forms, poetry and photography, and. And, and playwriting, and I, I was really curious. I mean, I can feel that in both films, but you really sort of moved beyond, I think, your prior work, your prior media. 
um, or it feels that way to me. Maybe maybe for for the both of you, it it feels very much in concert with the work you've been doing to this point. I mean, actually, Raven, I know that you um, had a lot of photography that that sort of set up your visual imagination for the film and, and poetry as well. Um, but it's interesting; these these feel very much for me like. Um, fully formed traces of other art forms, everything that you both seem to know, but also as films, just completely um, cinema, you know? Um, and I'm curious about your relationship to the medium before jumping into this project and, and your prior work and how it might've informed the project. Yeah, I think for me, um, my, my poetry, um, like I come to, I, I studied writing first, specifically poetry, and I, it's, it's, my obsessions are still there, you know, uh, with nature, with uh, um, the body, with small moments, all of that. And so when I made the leap to studying film, it's still, it, it translates, it feels like all the mediums I, I like, I explore speak to each other in a way. And so um, when coming to this project, the photographs for sure, I took photographs of the South uh, and landscapes, members of my family that were in the pitch deck and informed and, again, helped evoke that feeling for me when I was approaching the page. Um, so it didn't feel like a big leap. I think the big, because I had made the leap when I went from poetry to film, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? And so it felt like I was already on the ground. I was just discovering more. Yeah, well, film was actually, when I was a kid, kind of what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I wanted to be a film director. Um, and then it just seemed really unattainable for a lot of reasons. I remember I thought about applying to film school when I was 17, and it just was... I, yeah, I just remember looking at like the NYU brochure and they said you had to produce your own movies or something. It just was like, it just, it did seem like it was a thing rich kids did. Um, so I, I just was, and I think I um, was also just really intimidated by the idea of directing. The whole thing just seemed impossible. Um, and theater ended up being a thing I kind, I fell into a little more accidentally, which I think actually benefited me in a lot of ways. I have a lot of, I actually have way more gaps in my theater history knowledge than my film history knowledge. And in some ways, it's, I think it it helped me starting out because I could sort of going back to the courage thing, just be like, well, I'm going to do this thing. And I don't actually know if anyone's done it before because I don't know. But And with film, I felt actually sort of more burdened by my film nerdiness and anxiety. Um, and sometimes I, you know, sometimes you have to pay attention to that and sometimes you have to let go of that. Um, for me, the biggest leap, le less of the, like, the aesthetic of film, which actually felt like, oh, my God, I wanted to do this my whole life, like, work in this medium, was more than just, like, being captain of a giant ship. And, man, and being the boss for that many people, it's wild. And um, when you just watch, now when I watch the end crawl, like you just have a totally different relationship to end crawl forevermore, I think, after <laughs> directing a movie. And um, that was really new and exciting and terrifying and transformative. Like I, re I feel like m being in charge of an opera, and it was a tiny movie, you know, like in the world of movies, I think it was really small, but it's still a lot of, dudes 
And um, <laughs> I, it was really amazing. And I'm like, I feel like a different person now that I did that. Yeah. Yeah, but it was scary. Can I ask about, I mean, you're, you're, you're saying some things that I, I'm really interested in in part because I think you used the word intimidated, um, which I, I, I kind of can't imagine. I mean, as a critic and as a programmer, I think about film every day, um, much of the day, but I still can't wrap my mind around how you do it, in particular because you both made such intimate films. I think about... For example, the moment in your film, Annie, of mother and daughter in bed, and I think the daughter's saying, like, I want to take a piece of you. Or the hug that I timed the second time that I watched um, because I I knew that it would be an impressive number. Um, what was it? Well, it, <laughs> it was like a, a minute of hand-holding embrace, and then the embrace is like a central three minutes, and then another minute of holding hands. Um, it felt very, I felt like I needed to break it down a little bit because the full gesture um, is is so key. But um, you're making such intimate projects um, and yet you're the captain of the ship. How do you kind of bring that intimacy of the subject to bear on how you run the ship? How do you, how do you establish that on set? How do you make actors feel safe? How do you make everyone feel like they can open up to Do you mean project. like physical intimacy or emotional intimacy Both. or all of it all of it Yeah But really I think mostly emotional um, like like how to create a space where people can feel really vulnerable and yeah. and like lie in bed together and stare at each other or hug each other you, like, you mean like create that kind of space yeah, for right. actors and Right Um it's really hard i i feel like i w one thing I, f I i was i was actually really worried about that um and then actually once i got to set i i realized like oh my god talking to actors is actually like the thing i've done for 13 years um and i and i learned the hard way i wasn't a natural at it when in my late 20s like i was a very result oriented like do it this way person and um, I really had to learn how to talk to actors and make them feel free and open and loose. And um, I was so glad for all that like hard theater rehearsal room meltdown experience when I was on set. And I, and I, looking back, I actually, you know, I made so many mistakes, but I actually think I took good care of my actors. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear. Yeah, and I love the scene from your film that was mentioned because I adore that scene with them both in the bed. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, I'm really big on being intentional about protecting the space around the actors and like not having as little people around as possible when we're shooting and video village as far away as possible. Um, even though people tend to, you know, group around the AC monitor. <laughs> um, but, and because it, with the film, often I'm asking the actors to go to intimate spaces or to be available for inspiration, but it's also for me, you know what I mean? I don't want to hear about what's for lunch when we're trying to go somewhere, you know, important. And so I think for me, that's a big thing I do is really try to have as little noise around as possible so people can really be in it, you know, and I'm really intentional about that. I'm wondering, um, because you both talked about the longer cuts, um, which I'm kind of so curious about. I mean, two hours and 40 minutes. 
It's a lot. Yeah. That's like casino. That's like, <laughs> um, it's almost Titanic, you know? That's like, that's a lot. Um, that's how I think of these things. Um, but, but in part because I'm so impressed in both of these projects by how much is left unsaid and by the, the tempo of each, the space, the amount of, I mean, the crickets <laughs> in both, the sounds, um, the rain, the things that you, that you, it's like you, you found, both of you found ways to sort of strip the films down to the essentials, but it's still so evocative. And I'm curious about the path from the page. I know that Raven, you had multiple drafts and you, I think you mentioned in your Sundance interview, sort of stripping it down in the writing process and then I guess further in the, in the cut. Um, and then the two, hundred, to the two hour and 40 minute version of your film, um, I c almost can't imagine um, what what else would be there because everything seems to be in place. So I'm curious about how you what you took away, how you how you distilled the project. Um, for me, it was really listening to what the film wanted. You know, it's a very I knew going into production that just because it's on the script doesn't mean it's going to be like once we shoot. That doesn't mean it's going to be exactly the script. It's a very modular script. I mean, it's it's scenes at different ages. I knew once I get into the edit, it could be asking to be ordered differently. And so I was already open to that going into the edit. Um, but yeah, emotionally, there are some scenes where there's a lot of, I say, slant rhymes often, a lot of slant rhymes in the film. And sometimes it's like, it doesn't need that extra beat, you know? Even though I love it, it's beautiful, but it doesn't need that. Or... It doesn't need this moment with this character. Feels like, why are we with this character? You know what I mean? Things like that. And so, really um, taking the time to sit with the cut to and to return to it. That's I'm, I need space too to like really take take in the cut at times. And it would be just listening to okay, this feels repetitive here, or it just feels like we already have this beat. And there are just several scenes I love, but it just wasn't. It didn't. It wasn't needed anymore. Where it worked in the script, it felt. It felt. Um, it felt as beautiful as it was. It felt like it was. It was taking away rather than adding in a way. Yeah, it was amazing how intuitive it actually ends up being, and how it does feel like the film like spits out as some weird animal that just like chews up and spits out scenes that you thought were really good, but in when you watch your cut just like it somehow it just feels like the film's rejecting them and and so that happened to me with a lot of the material and I mean to be clear our first cut was like I hadn't it wasn't one I was pleased with you know we like we we you know we spent months putting it together and then I remember the day before Thanksgiving we watched it and it was like the most devastating it was completely devastating and I felt like I was going to throw up. I thought I was going to cry. Like I really was like, yeah, just watching something that didn't work on that massive. And, and, and I was just, yeah, I was wrecked and my editor said something like Scorsese says, if you don't puke after watching your first cut, you're not a real filmmaker. <laughs> some like, some like thing like that, but it actually made me feel better because I really like on a physical level was like, this is wrong. I thought I knew what I was doing and this is all wrong. But it was a kind of incredible experience because that cut was everything we had shot. It was kind of an assembly. Like it was everything we had shot and doing our absolute best trying to 
because my script was pretty like, I, I tend to rewrite as I go. And I thought I had a pretty solid 67 page script. So, um, it was pretty wild to find out it was too, you know, over two and a half hours and that it didn't work. So, um, and then the process from that point on, it was like super intuitive. You're just like, oh, I don't want to watch this right now. Like in isolation, this works, but somehow watching the dailies, I loved this, but somehow in the context of the movie, it's like unbearable. Um, and my, my editor who was wonderful and I had a really funny dynamic where I act, he was like, you're sort of playing the editor role and I'm playing the filmmaker role. I was quite ruthless and he would like feel, be a little more protective of stuff. Mm. Um, which was interesting. Um, yeah, but I found it like on a physical level, you could just kind of be like, that feels bad. We have to get rid of it. And it's heartbreaking because it was like a major plot point. Can I ask yeah. a question? Yeah. I'm curious when you wa watch the assembly, because I had the same feeling when I watched the assembly was like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and I'm curious for you what you did to build that trust back in what you did on set, back in yourself, back in the film. You know what I mean? You, did you, like, the assembly, like, after? When the first thing I watched after being, it was like a month after we shot. Yeah. And it was straight with the script. And when I watched it, I had the feeling of the same thing you described of, Oof, you know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is a little bit of panic, a lot of panic. Yeah. And, but then I... For me, my process for building my trust back in the process that I, what the film myself was like watching the scenes um, that I was most excited about mm -hmm. and focusing on those first and then building off of that. And I'm curious if you had something that was your re-entry into the film after that? God, that's such a good question. Yeah, because I never watched, my editor was like, don't watch the assembly, you'll want to die. So <laughs> I didn't. Um, but then I had that experience like two months later when I watched like the first cut that we had made. Um, it was so tough. I don't, I barely remember. I think the thing that was reassuring was a thing you just don't get in theater, which was like, oh, we can just be really radical and then put it back. Like I just started kind of radically cutting stuff and making like really big moves and then knowing we had all the footage and we could just put it back and that what was called for was like huge radical edits and that that was like what this film was presenting me with and it, you know that, that but man I still feel upset about it. <laughs> like I'm still building trust back up um yeah yeah but it was yeah I feel like I I feel like those seven to eight months editing were my film school and I I, I feel like I will approach things completely differently now um yeah and then but it was thrilling I don't know if you had this experience like feeling really bad getting really low I and then I remember coming in with some sort of crazy cuts like really huge cuts in my editor saying like I don't know if that's gonna work that's too big it'll hurt the story and then us kind of like feeling like cutting off the film's arm and then kind of watching it and being like, oh my God, it's better. You know, that feeling of like, we are making it better. We aren't making these cuts because we're pandering or because someone's telling us to. We're making these cuts because like, we know it needs to get better. Yeah. Something I'm curious about um, that's related to this, but that um, stands out to me about both of these films, particularly rewatching them recently, um, is 
I am I'm kind of obsessed with the way that you both put your finger on the mysteries of the adults in our lives when we're children. And this kind of relates to the to the editing question in part because I I was sort of curious about uh that being something that was distilled, like clarifying the relationships um, in the edit, but also as you're making it, but also just broadly. Um, um, and it's a kind of slippery kind of question to ask, I guess, but um, the way that both of your films reminded me of the things that I did not know about my parents or didn't understand about my parents or adults, the people that they were dating um, or whatever it is, the things that I didn't realize could be true about my parents until I was older, um, the things that I didn't know that I didn't know. Your films both feel so informed by the mystery of that, but also the the joy of those connections in the midst of the relationships, in particular, like mothers and daughters, um, but also fathers and father figures, or um, the kind of the momentary maybe stepsister that we get early on, um, her friend that I really, really kind of so sad for her, um, <laughs> frankly. But but just this is something that I just it's 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 barely a question, but it's something that you're both your films both made me think about is just. Um, what we don't know about the most important people in our lives as we're adolescents and the ways that that affects our childhoods, but that we just, we don't quite understand yet. Um, I don't know how to turn that into like more of a question, but it's just something that your films are uh, really made me think about. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of uh, the mother in your film and the complicated things that she is trying to understand about herself that a daughter might not understand that a mother is trying to understand, but also that as an adult, you don't know about yourself even. Just making a film about that is really interesting to me. Making a film about um, the kind of transience of, of parents, be it death or, or not being around. I'm thinking of when a father comes back and we see a shadow appear on the JFK and MLK portraits, but he's sort of disembodied. Um, these moments that really just, I feel like I sit up in my seat and I'm thinking about um, everything that our parents don't reveal to us about themselves and how you turn that into narrative art, even nonlinear, um, is fascinating to me. And I would love to just kind of pick your brains a little bit about that theme and and your approach to it, your interest so in it. So much in your film, I yeah, I, I I when you were talking, I was just thinking of this scene where the mom is dancing and she's just like she looks so exquisitely beautiful and it's so sensuous and it's like the daughter, it's like it is that like daughter watching mother as like the most beautiful person in the world, and then the mother like she like touches her foot and then the mother's like she says something like don't speak unless you're spoken to, and it's that. I loved that sequence so much and that moment where your mother is like a goddess and then can like just with like one little sentence kind of just like cut your head off. And I thought, yeah, I thought I, I, I thought that was so special. And I feel like that's sort of yeah, what you're talking about, the, the like incredible power your parents have and how well you know them and how how well and you don't know them at all and and the tension of that mystery i don't have anything i don't have an answer to any 
of it. But yeah. but but I I do I did I did keep thinking about that sequence after I watched it in your movie. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that one because that's when you were speaking uh, about your question. That's the one that came to mind for me too, and thinking of the mysteries of because it was when I was directing Sheila in that scene, it was like I was thinking of myself as a child in a while, and it came to like that scene reminds me a lot of myself as a child, mm. like in being in those spaces, but also feeling a little uninvited. You know, it's like it's a grown folks time. You know what I mean, and so. That line for me is very important to speak to that because she's there and she's watching and the joy of it all, but also like um, um, to the mysteries of adulthood, like the mother is playing a game, you know, she's with, uh, they're, they're uh, saying things that they don't necessarily want a child to hear, you know what I mean? And so um, that was a scene that came to mind to me too. Because she's still outside of it as much as she is there, you know? Were you interested in making films, I, I kind of hate the phrase coming of age, but broadly it, it applies. Were you interested in making films about adolescence in that way? Were you interested in, because I think the adult perspective is actually very, very important to what both of you are My doing. My follow-up question is, does it annoy you when people say it's a coming of age yeah. story or that it's a mother <laughs> or that it's a mother daughter story cuz i those are both like true of my movie and then i'm all, i i it, it is also like it's it's it is and i'm sure every filmmaker feels this way but it is hard when you are trying to make something that's also about like nature and aesthetics and philosophy and all these other things and then someone's like it's a mother daughter story and you're like oh man i guess it is but that was like kind of like number 10 on my list of things I was thinking about. Yeah. No, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an, it's for sure an aspect of it and it's there. It's a thread, but it's not, it's not, a, I wouldn't, I don't feel Otter Roads is a coming of age film. It is an aspect of it, but it's more, you know, it's like, um, so I, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. yeah. And just the, yeah, yeah. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> but but it is but the, but there is the moment where you're like I guess it's a fucking coming of age story, isn't it? Like I just have to be okay with it and there's a lot of these You don't have to be there's, okay. There's with a it. lot of you know you know you don't want to be like no it's not. Or so, you know it's it, <laughs> but but yeah. But you did both make films about nature. Um and I I don't I I think maybe because of the cult aspect of the or like the the amorphous that that commune i think i just in my mind that's california i was actually surprised that it was the northeast because i i'm so new jersey that if i see colt i think manson i think california but it's more interesting to me actually that it's massachusetts it's a, and that it's we're just a puppet theater where they all live together but i guess yeah it's a little but, the, but the mother does yeah. sort of yeah. They're talking about it, and she says, you know, what is a cult? And it's a difficult, weird question. Totally. She doesn't understand if that's even what it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I appreciate that she doesn't quite know. But you you made films about nature and place. The rain in your film um, is really remarkable. It's something that I feel like I kept hearing after the film was over. And, and the house that your film is set in and the surroundings, it just sort of, it is key to how I remember your film when I'm thinking about it. Um, that house is like remarkable. Yeah, it's a, did you shoot exactly where you grew up? No, I, I grew up in Tennessee. We, I shot in Mississippi, oh, which is it. where my mom was from. I, shoot, I shot like exactly where I grew up and 
to find that house I joined nextdoor.com and pretended to be my mom. And and I and I looked for a really long time because I, I really wanted to find the right place. How did you find like the place that you settled on in Mississippi? Location scouting and I love just driving around. Uh, um, with Maria and I drove around just looking for places and um, there was a, the house we used for their main home was nearby. So I saw a house for the house, the house burning on fire scene mm. that was already, it already had a roof fire. Like it was, it was, oh, wow. it had had a roof I fire I wondered about there. that, mm-hmm. how you did that. And so, and it had a sign, I think for lease, for sale or something. And we called, they were down for us to put some, some propane bars in there. And we did VFX too. So it was like a mix of both, but nearby, there were other houses we used on set because um, we we said, oh, this could be a pocket of the neighborhood that we use for the film. And everyone um, was open to that. And some of them, some of the folks are uh, in the film as background actors and like the owners of the house that actually had the fire are like in the scene of the house on fire. Um, um, and so... That was how we found it, just location scouting and driving around and getting lost and seeing what's possible. But you you knew you were going to shoot in Mississippi where your mom grew up. No, I thought at first I was shooting in Tennessee because oh, wow. I, I grew up fishing on the Cumberland River and I wanted to shoot there. I really did. But then I found Rose Hill Church through, uh, that's in Mississippi, it's in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I found it through Bill Ferris's photographs and they, the church, the photographs, uh, were from the early 70s. So I was like, there's no way this church is still standing, but I'm going to send this cold email anyway. (laughs) And I sent it to Bill and it was still standing. And he was so down for us to shoot there. And the church has so much rich history, like in the scene, the wedding scene, the song that's playing is from Mary and Amanda Gordon, who were pillars of the church when it was still in operation. And they're in those photographs from the 70s. Wow. And and you know their song is in the trailer, and so it it was a beautiful gift in that way. In that I'm shooting where my mom is from, and the film does so much with like what's passed from generation to generation. We shot the grocery store scene is in my mom's hometown, Crystal Springs, and it's like it's five. It's very close to where she grew up, you know. It's, so it's like it was a, a beautiful conversation. Yeah. I'm curious, the um, women whose faces that we see in the church, were they from the community? Some were, and, and some were people in my life. They were amazing faces. And I, I loved the way that you, we kind of step into that scene by looking at them in succession, and then we kind of greet the wedding visually. Right. And the people who, there are some people who just live in the area and some people who were who were a part of Rose Hill Church or who had members of their family who were when it was still in operation. Um, but yeah, it was. I wanted to do those portraits before we see the reveal. Do we have time for questions from the audience? Okay. Does anyone have questions? <laughs> Thank you. Um, Hello, Uh, my name is Amy. Um, So nice to meet you both and thank you for sharing so much about your process. Um, Given that you're a poet and you're a playwright, I'd love to hear about your process of script writing. And I'm curious if your poetic practice and your playwriting practice made its way into the script. Like what does your film script actually look like? Um, I had had written screenplays for 
many years to support myself um, before I wrote this screenplay, but um, I had a really negative relationship to Final Draft, which I just think is awful for so many reasons. And my script was like finally entered into Final Draft, but I think it's a really intimidating and also like smothering program. Um, and I, I'm so glad you feel that way too. Yeah. Every everyone nodding vigorously. Yes. Um, and and I think I had a thing. I never write my plays like. I always write my plays just kind of as floating fragmented dialogue in a word document for a really long time before I like format it with character names. Cause I actually think even just the time it takes to like press return and enter character names can like detract from your flow. And um, part of the revelation of starting to Janet Planet was just like, okay, what if I try to do this? Like, what if I try to approach this as like, uh, low stakes and sideways as possible the way I do with my plays when I'm just taking notes for years instead of sitting down and being like, I'm going to write a screenplay. That was really helpful for me. And then also writing for myself to direct. I'd always written screenplays like for hire for other people to direct. And there's a kind of like clarity and punchiness that I think is just like demanded or you think is demanded as a screenwriter. And so I was always kind of writing for someone else. Um, and it was, there was a moment where I was like, okay, I'm just going to open a Word document. I'm just going to not enter character names or setting or anything. And I'm just going to kind of riff. And it's not for anybody to see but me. Nobody will ever look at this but me. And if anything is ever comes of it, I'll be the one to direct it. And I think that freed me up a lot. I'm really curious what your process was like. <clears throat> yeah, for this one, it started off... Um, I just really didn't know what the shape was going to look like. I had to find that, find it. And so at first with the different ages, I would, I would, for the portraits, I was, I would have a Roman numeral seven and then write a little bit and then another Roman numeral. And then it just didn't flow, you know, and it was helpful to have a few people read it. And I got the recommendation that, um, why not just use the slug lines to aid and, delineating the different ages rather than adding another page. And I was just using those pages for extra page length anyway. <laughs> I was just, yeah, if I'm being honest. <laughs> and so when I did that, I it really made it more fluid. And I in the slug line, I bold what age she is to like ground the reader. And I have a little paragraph at the beginning of the script or towards the beginning of how to read it that, you know, the age is found in the slug line. But other than that, it's a pretty straightforward script, but I'm, it's very spare. I think that's, a, it's very spare. I think that's where my poetry comes into and in that um, I'm very in, intentional with certain images in certain places. But um, yeah, that was, it was a, a process of finding how to make the fluid quality I'm looking for in the film be mirrored in the script. Um, I guess I'm curious, both of you as writers, how do you, go about keeping yourself accountable to like writing and completing the writing process. So I'm asking, that's something I really am quite crappy with. So I guess, yeah, I'm asking how you, you both go about doing that. I, <laughs> my students ask me that, I teach too, um, which is how I don't find myself accountable. For, it's like my excuse to not be accountable to the writing process. Um, 
I, I found it really liberating at a certain point to just realize I'm not the kind of person who writes every day. I'm not the kind of person who even writes every week. I don't have a schedule. I don't stick to it. It's just not who I am. And I'm so envious and in awe of the people who do. Um, but I realized that was making me feel bad about myself for so long. Like I really thought I wasn't a real writer because I just like wrote sporadically. Um, and also because the people in my life, this was even, I have a kid now, which just like explodes everything schedule wise. But even before that, I'm just a person who like loves to spend time with my friends and loves to, you know, just isn't a like, sorry, I'm writing. I can't see you kind of person. And, um, again, I thought that meant I wasn't a real writer because relationships were so important to me and, and, um, yeah, it's just not true. So I think I just say follow pleasure. And and then it's so great. You're like, oh, I do want to write. Like once I'm not worried about the fact that I'm not writing enough, I can actually feel the urge to write. Um, and then I just do it when I want to do it. Yeah. That, that makes it sound easy and it's awful, but... But but it it was really big for me. It was really big for me, like letting go of of a of a like responsible person's writing schedule and having a job and teaching really helps with that. I mean, you have to have another source of income, and for me, that was like everything. Like knowing that my survival was not based on me finishing a draft in time, super super important. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I don't think it's necessarily the healthiest thing, but um, I work really well under pressure. And so it would be like how to get that sense of, I, I some, sometimes if I have too much time, it's like, it's, I wouldn't do, I would be too, I wouldn't bring it out into the page. And so we apply, I, I applied to like writing residencies and would use that um, application deadline or something to like, I mean, earlier on the development of it to like get me to get out some pages if it has a page, page deadline that I haven't necessarily, like when I hadn't written a, a lot of pages yet. And then when I was in more advanced stages, it would be using uh, whether it's producers or friends to, to say, I'm going to get you a draft here or even with myself. Like I, I really had to find ways for myself to um, get that sense of, Okay, you have until now, Raven. And I think we all have to know how, you know, how what works best for us. But for me, just that sense of working towards something, like I need that pressure. Those are really refreshing answers. Just because we live in, you know, you always see those Paris review, like on Instagram, they'll excerpt the one part of the interview where the writer's like, I wake up at 6 a.m. <laughs> You know, I have a very nice breakfast, and then I write from this hour to this hour, and then I watch bass. It's just, like, terrible. Um, and, and also, so it's, like, it's always, like, a guy with a wife. Yes. Yes. That's, I was literally, in my head, imitating someone in particular. Yeah, for, who for has, like, a very, wife who's, very, like, bringing him lunch and stuff. Bringing him tea and, yeah. yes. <laughs> Reading his drafts. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you. Yes. Um, well, yes. Thank you for the talk. It's like been really illuminating. Um, Annie, I'm much more familiar with your work. I've lived with your plays for many years and uh, I saw your film the other day. I thought it was brilliant. Um, and I was thinking back and like comparing it to your plays 
And one thing that I was really curious about this difference between theater and film for you is how you deal with um, negative space and absence and how in your plays um, you are very good at using like offstage as this like element of like this looming sort of like void um, and then on stage what the audience um, all we have to go off of you know is this sort of like liminal zone and I was wondering how you dealt with that when transitioning to film because uh, I noticed like you often had like characters positioned like right on the edge of the frame in the film and I was wondering if that was something you were trying to like carry over and if there were other like formal elements you found yourself um, carrying over or discarding when you moved to film. Yeah, thank you. That's so thoughtful. And it, I'm having the feeling where like the person you're talking to like understands your work better than you do. Um, so I don't, I'm not going to sound smarter than you just did right now. And But also what you said feels really true. And like, I really appreciate it. Um, and I actually felt that way about your film too, that there's so much emotion happening outside the frame and so much action happening outside the frame. Um, for me, it's a very intuitive thing. It's not like a decision I'm making. And actually, I feel um, if it, when it when it has been an intellectual decision, it usually doesn't work as well as when just like intuitively, I feel like we don't need to see the thing right now. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example in my movie or your movie, but do you know what I mean? Like, like, um, and some of it was my DP too. Like some, my DP is like a very, um, has a very kind of like slippery spiritual way of shooting stuff and very intuitive. She's not like a, yeah, she's a very like unconventional and, intuitive cinematographer and so sometimes it was also honestly just like the weird framing she chose that I was like that's great that was a question I had because there was some moments where there was like a hand lingering or you know and I was like oh I wonder how planned this is or was it found you know what I mean like I was curious and then when you mentioned the cinematographer I was curious yeah what that about how much y'all lean towards like finding or like a uh, shot listing or knowing what you were going to end on. Cause there were some moments I was really struck by what the final, like whether it's the hand closing the door or there was one, I can't exactly remember what the scene was. It might be when they were, they were in the, the bed. Yeah. And the mom's hand is on the sheets. Yeah. Well, that, and I have the same question for you after, but I think that's an example of like the hand on the door is like super planned and we shot listed it and we had to figure out how we were going to cut it because it's actually sort of like you can't tell because it's in blackness, but it's like cutting back and forth quite quickly. And then on the hand, so we were like very careful about this. Like I thought about a lot of like Brisson movies while I was shot listed. It was like that was very like intellectual, the shot listing behind that um, sequence. Um, and then... Janet's hand on the sheets when she sits up and hears like her boyfriend outside, that was something that happened just in the rush of shooting it. And then I was like, I love that so much. And it felt like it was in dialogue with what had happened before. And then we had Julianne do it over and over again. And, 
And I feel like that's the amazing thing about film. Like certain things are super planned and then, uh, and then something you like even more is a complete accident and, and how to have enough time to be open to that or not have enough time, but still let it happen. Um, what was your shot listing process like with your DP? We, we shot listed for sure, but to your point about being open, like being open to what's actually happening before us. And when you mentioned like the hands being in conversation, Jomo and I would say slant rhymes and like the hands and how the embraces, how are they uh, speaking to each other and, um, and uh, showing like how these relationships have changed or evolved. And so, yeah, we were definitely, we knew what we were going for, but we were open. Mm -hmm. You linger in hands on hands in a way that really made me think about, like the uh, the physical texture of hands, like like age, like the grandmother's hand in particular is like a beautiful hand, and the way that you linger on that, you construct entire scenes. It feels like out of out of those parts of the body, but hands in particular felt very very deliberate. And was that something that you was that something you were sort of that was in your shot listing, or was that something where you are are kind of figuring out what the emotional contours of a scene are and you're saying this is what's this is what makes sense this is all we need to do yeah you know some of it the the scene on the couch with the clay dirt and it's all hands that's in the script you know there are moments where I've, I've scripted that hands are going to be at play but it rose like when we started to shot listing it rose but then we're on set it rose even more like even like Kaylee in the first scene when she digs into the dirt at the river, I realized then, oh, this is, I hadn't scripted that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, well, this is going to be a rhyme, you know? And so it was knowing I, just who I am, hands are up there with eyes for me, you know? And they say so much for, like, I love hands. And so I knew they were going to have play, but it was a discovery how much they played. I think we're almost out of time. We have one more question. Yeah, in the back. Hi, thank you so much for this. It was really inspiring. Um, I, my first question is for Raven. Um, I was really struck by the privacy you afforded your characters and how paradoxically, like experientially, that made me feel more linked to their interiority. And so I was wondering how you came upon that visual language or approach. And then for both of you, I was wondering what... Uh, What's the momentum that drives you through the course of a project? You know, I'm sure it changes throughout the various stages, but I was wondering kind of like what keeps your fire lit? Yeah, to the question about privacy, um, what comes to mind, sound is coming to mind when you say that, and how I wanted to be intentional about using the sound design of the film to get into a deeper, hopefully, level of interiority with these characters. And I I, I think of, with your question, the moment of Mac lying on the ground and uh, you just hear the nature around her. It's like those moments where there's quiet, you know, and it's in, but there's so much happening and how sound could speak to that. And so much happening, not just in the world, but inside of this character, even in this moment of quiet, you know? Um, 
so yeah, I really, I thought about that a lot and that's what's coming up with your question. And the second question was what keeps your fire lit? I, which I love that phrase, by the way. I was really worried about that because people told me how hard it was going to be. And um, I remember my producer said, like, it's going to feel like the whole process is designed to kill you. And he was totally right. And I, I had a two-year-old when I was prepping the movie and a three-year-old when I was shooting it. Um, and now she's four. And um, it, 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 yeah, it, I, 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 you know, I, this is like such a dumb thing to quote. It's an amazing book, but there's like, I, my childhood favorite book was The Phantom Tollbooth. And at the end of The Phantom Tollbooth, they've like done the whole quest or whatever. And then the like king has a secret or something. I, anyway, the, but the secret is like what you just did was impossible, but they only know at the end that it was impossible. And I feel I could cry talking. I feel like I, that's how I feel about this movie. Like I couldn't do that again. It absolutely destroyed me and also I had endless and I don't know like the second we finished like the final DCP review which was honestly like only like a month ago I slept for like five days straight and I realized that for two and a half years I'd like been on a kind of like cocaine that my brain was manufacturing for itself and um I was so, but it was, it's beautiful. Like I was so energized and I was so crazy and I was so on fire and I didn't forget anything and I didn't drop any balls and I can't believe it. And, um, I don't know it. I don't know if it's just like pure fear and panic or love of the form or what, but it, it, it's almost like just even a month later, I don't quite understand how it all happened and how I operated on so little sleep for so long. Um, how do you feel about it? <laughs> Speaking of so little sleep, I remember being on set. I wouldn't even need to set the alarm. I would just wake up in a panic. Yes, <laughs> totally. I would wake up like at 4 a.m. even yeah. if we didn't have to be there till 8. I know, yeah. and it's like, and I'm a deep sleeper, but it got to a point where I literally would just wake, I would not need to set an alarm and, and, um, <laughs> not the healthiest thing. <laughs> um... You know, that's a hard one. I think for me, because the days are hard, they can be hard, and it's beautiful, but hard too, especially when you're shooting a lot outside, you know. But I think it's um, during production is having good people around you and, like, of course, caring about what you're making, you know what I mean? And when the days are hard or when something falls out, like, reminding yourself of why you're doing this. And for me, my pitch deck was a good reminder of that or looking at inspirations. I have, I, have, I made an inspirations deck with like photographs of, um, photographs of my grandma's photo album and looking at things like that really would be like, okay, this is, I know why I'm doing this. Well, totally. And it made me, it was so brutal that I was like, how do directors who don't, didn't write this, like who don't feel super close to the material do this? Like I actually couldn't, I was like, this is so my movie. I wrote it. I'm one of the producers. Like I, it, it was so close to me and it was still so brutal. And I was kind of blown away by the idea of like, what if I was just some like gun for hire who was like directing a screenplay I didn't even like that much. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I, I felt very, very thankful that my first movie was something that was so 
dear and close to me and involved people I loved and shooting in places that were important to me with extras who are people I know who are important to me. Um, that did make it, yeah, in the really dark moments feel worth it. Yeah. I think that's a great place to close, yeah. Thank you everyone for coming. Thank you for the show.